Hello, my name is Natalie Rivera, and this is How I Fuck, a podcast about how we have sex, sponsored by Fembot Magazine. I think about sex a lot. I'm sure you do too. But what is sex? I can read you the dictionary definition, but that's not what this podcast is about. What does sex mean to someone who is ignored on a regular basis? What does it mean to someone who is considered too sexual or not sexual enough? To someone who almost never gets asked, what turns you on? This podcast is about what satisfies a person. It's about whether the things that happen to us in our lives, the interests we have, or the circumstances we're in shape how we experience pleasure, whether that's with a partner, a toy, or alone. Full disclosure, I am by no means a sex expert. I am, however, a journalist with more than eight years of experience who, for whatever reason, is super curious about how people have sex. Also, these stories do not reflect a community or experience as a whole. They reflect the person that these stories belong to. One of the questions I'll be asking all of my guests on this podcast is, when did you realize you're a sexual being? Whether I include their answer in the episode or not is a whole different story, but I always do enjoy hearing people's answers. I realized I had sexual needs when I was about six years old. Matthew Broderick had a lot to do with that. That was probably one of the first times I took note of what my body can do. My body can clearly get turned on by watching Inspector Gadget. Noted. Everything else, though, like how my arms work or what my legs can do, was never really something I had to think too much about. I know I sound privileged when I say that I never truly gave my physical capabilities much consideration. I didn't really have to think too much about it. My body has always seemed to work in my favor, at least for as long as I can remember. That's never been the case for our guest, Andrew Gerza. You understand that you're disabled from from the time you're born. You just know it. It's something that is, I can't explain it, but it's something you know inside your, your body. You just know. Your body tells you very clearly that there are things you can't do, and you just learn that you have a disability. And so for me, I was always, from the age of four on, I was in a wheelchair. So I knew that like my body was different. I just knew. It's just something you... It's something that you just understand as your normal. And so for me, it was, that was my normal. Andrew was born with cerebral palsy, a motor disability that is caused by abnormal brain development or damage to the developing brain. People with cerebral palsy have difficulties with their movement and posture, and in severe cases need special equipment to do everyday things, like walking. On average, one in every 323 children born is identified with CP, but not everyone with CP does what Andrew does. Andrew, who's 35, is a disability awareness consultant. What does that work include? What does that look like? Well, I mean, I'm kind of a, I'm a, I'm a freelancer, so it looks like whenever somebody wants me to do a talk, I, I give those. Um, I do presentations all over the world. And so what happened in your journey that led you to this? Not having a job and needing income. That's literally how it happened. I literally went on Vistaprint. I made a card that said like, Andrew Moore, Andrew, my Andrew Gerza, disability awareness consultant, not knowing what the hell that meant. And just saying, this is what I do now. Um, Hire me. And people started 
believing that I could do it when I really had no idea what the hell I was doing. And then it just comes sort of spiraled from there. While a lot of Andrew's work involves speaking engagement and writing articles about navigating life as someone with CP, he's mostly known for talking about what it's like having sex as a disabled person. His award-winning podcast, Disability After Dark, is all about sex and disability, from using sex swings as a wheelchair user to disability representation in media. Andrew talks about the things many people with disabilities think about on a daily basis and that able-bodied people never had to. I was like, you know, I'm queer, and I, I've always wanted to talk about the, my connection with queerness and disability. I've always wanted to have those conversations. No one's having them. What if I just started doing it? When you do a Google search for sex and cerebral palsy, you'll find articles and studies that argue that cerebral palsy does not affect sexual function or sexual drive. But while this may be true, having sex as someone with CP still has its challenges, and some might say limitations. Like any red-blooded young boy, I realized that I like masturbating at like 10. That was great. Um, but then I very quickly, like I did that for a couple of years, and then I, but, I, but I realized as I got older and over the last couple of years that it's gotten harder to self-pleasure and harder to masturbate because of the muscles in my hands and the spasticity in my hands and my dexterity. So for people with penises, when you... Typically, when you masturbate yourself, you're, there's a pumping motion that you do. And so with me, my hands can't do that. So ever since I was young, I would kind of just jerk off with the head of my thumb. And that was not, that felt good. That was nice. But then the dexterity changed and my hands changed. And that got harder and harder to do. So I, I can't actually self-pleasure anymore. Take that in for a second. Andrew can't self-pleasure himself anymore. I was pretty surprised by how nonchalant Andrew seemed when he told me this. But the longer I spoke to Andrew, the more it made sense to me that he would just tell me a detail of that enormity like that. Andrew is strategic about his sex life. If you think about it, it makes sense. Unlike abled people, and yes, I understand that I am making a generalization that all abled people have a similar experience, but bear with me here. Andrew wasn't exposed to conversations about the type of sex he would actually be having. Sex education, whether that was at school or through a Google search, didn't revolve around the reality that disabled people would and will have sex. We never saw depictions of, like, disabled people in, in sex, so in, like, sex ed, so, and that's still not happening. So, yeah, a lot of it is not, it's not really inclusive. Still not. Even, like, I, I went to... I was in high school 20-some years ago, and it's still we're still having the same conversations. More than 13% of non-institutionalized Americans live with a disability, yet only 3% of characters in broadcast programming are portrayed with a disability. Now, these numbers come from GLAD's 2019-2020 Where We Are on TV report, which also takes into account characters with cancer, HIV, AIDS, and PTSD. So while this number may seem low, keep in mind it's likely the number of characters with mobile disabilities like CP is much lower than 3%. It gets more heartbreaking when you realize that only 10 characters with a disability identifies as LGBTQ. Yeah, 10. Yet an estimated 2 to 5 million Americans with a disability identifies as such. Andrew is one of them. When did you realize that you were queer? Oh, when I was six, 
I was like a little, I was a little boy being like, oh, I like this, and I don't know why, and I just assumed it was normal, and then you realize very quickly that it's not normal. I mean, that it's not normal in the sense of like, oh no, it's scary. I realized when I was six that like I liked the male body and I liked looking at men and I was attracted to that. Then I came out as gay at 15 and then I realized that gay wasn't quite the right term for me. And so queer, I think, is a, a, a much more inclusive term because it means I don't have to conform to gay male stereotypes. And so I say queer to be like, fuck you. I don't want to be I don't want to be part of your gay group that is exclusive and is really white and really cis and really able bodied. I want to be. I don't want to be part of that, so I say queer because I like dudes um, exclusively. But I say queer because it's almost like it's almost like a fuck you to the to the binary of gayness. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. I never really thought of it that way. What led you to decide that, and when? Um, well, I've always liked playing with language. So when I talk to, when I talk about myself around disability, I say queer cripple, and cripple is like was once a really derogatory term to describe disabled people and so I love using it and I actually have it tattooed on my chest uh because I just think it's like it's a big fuck you to all those people that don't that don't think I know what's happening and don't think I know what ableism is and don't think I know that they're being rude and don't think that I understand that you're afraid of me I know what it is and so by putting that on my chest I was like fuck all of you I know this is a these are terms of empowerment for me and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna show you Queerness is already pretty underrepresented, especially when Andrew was growing up. So you can only imagine the lack of information out there for him and other disabled LGBTQ people. I didn't hear about the kind of sex that I wanted to have. I was 14, wanted to fuck dudes. And I was hearing like, so and then you're going to impregnate a woman. And this is how, this is how like penis vagina sex works. And I'd always be like, hey, so what about other kinds of sex? And so sex, when was the first time you had it? I was 19. I was in college. I was online looking for dick every day, and I was just, I had moved, just moved away from home, and I really wanted, I really wanted that D. Uh, so I was like looking for somebody to sleep with. I was online every day, and I went online one day, and my roommate was in the room. He goes, What are you doing? And I was like, He goes, So you're looking for dick? And I was like, Well, yeah. And he was like, You're doing it wrong. Here, come here. So he goes, he goes into the computer, and he types in like, I want a blowjob, and he puts it up there, and within 20 minutes, my screen was flashing with a bunch of IMs. So, like, then I met this dude. Andrew meets the man, who is 12 years his senior, which kind of makes sense since Andrew has a pension for older men, and they have sex in his dorm room. Andrew came within the first 20 to 30 seconds of being touched. I came really fast because, like, I'd never been touched and so he, he was like, you've done this before, right? And I was like, oh, yeah, many times, a ton of times. I was totally fucking lying. I had never done it. And then so he made me come again. And I thought because he made me come, we were in love. So I said something to the effect of, let's go see a movie. Let's go be boyfriends. Like, let's, I was all being all lovey-dovey because I didn't know. my What I'd seen in, in movies was like, was like, you make somebody have come and then you must be dating. That's what sex is. He said to me, well, no, do you see a realtor over there? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I just actually came by because I felt bad for you. You were just a pity fuck. So my first time sucked. And if I could take that one back, I totally would. What do you say to something like that? 19-year-old Andrew said, oh, cool. Like, sorry. Like, I was 19 and I was scared. 
and I was upset. So I just was like, oh yeah, of course, like cool, okay. And then, but but after he left, I remember being really upset for like a good two or three days. I didn't eat, didn't see anybody. I was pretty pretty traumatized. Was that like your worst nightmare before? I mean, like. Is that something that you worried about? Like someone telling you something like that? No, because I never expected that somebody would say something like that. I didn't know. My fantasies of my first sexual experience were like, I love you, we're going to be together, like all the things you see on TV. So I, I honestly, that came out of left field for 19-year-old me. I didn't know how to handle that. And I mean, God, that was like, that was like 16 years ago. I still don't know. I still don't know how I would handle that if somebody... Now, said you're a pity fucking bad. Yeah. How does someone handle something like that? How do you avoid ever being told that again in your life? For Andrew, the answer came in two words. Sex workers. I just decided one day, I was like, I'm tired of dealing with people's bullshit. I want what I want. I want some hot sex. I don't want to apologize for it. And I don't want to enter into a relationship right away with someone either. I just want to, I just want to get my rocks off. And so... I went on a site, found a worker, and said, you're hot. Do you want to see if something goes? And he, they said yes, and that's how it started. I say that knowing that it's a privilege to be able to pay for sex. I don't think that a lot of disabled people have access to a lot of money all the time. So for me, it's a privilege. and I'm very lucky to be able to do that. I guess in terms of like technicalities, how does sex, like are you a top, a bottom? How does this work? Um... Uh, I would say, I, I would say that I, just for simplicity's sake, and because I've never, I have never bottomed, I want to bottom really a lot, I really do, I feel like as a queer man who likes men and not being able to bottom, I'm missing something out, I'm missing out on something, but I top mostly, so I had a sex worker over yesterday actually, and we fucked around and I topped, and so they sat on my dick, basically, and I, like, I can't thrust my dick into somebody, so they... They rode me, which was fun, and it was enjoyable. I jokingly refer to myself as a human dildo, which just means they sit on my dick, and they control the motion, they control how fast they're going, they control how deep they go. I can't do any of that, so they have to take charge. While there aren't too many recent studies about exactly how many disabled people pay for sex, one survey from 2005 found that more than 37% of disabled men and 16% of disabled women would consider paying for sex. However, there are personal essays out there from disabled people who claim they hire sex workers. Can you explain to me your the first time you even thought of like hiring a sex worker? Yep. Uh, two years ago, I was hiding in sex in 10 months. I was horny as fuck and couldn't get off. And I just thought, you know, and I've been looking on the site, which I'm not going to name because Sesta Foster is a real thing. But I went on this site and I looked... Just that I was like, I'm just going to go and look. I'm not going to hire anybody. And then I, then when I was on there, I saw somebody that was really hot. And I was like, oh, his pictures are like hot. I'm just going to, just going to message him and say, have you been with a disabled guy before? And he said, no. And I was like, that's hot. I get to be your first disabled guy. Like there's something really hot about that. So we hooked up over like text and then we started talking and then we set a time and he came over, sent him, like I Venmoed him the money in advance. So I never had to think about, I never had to like go to an ATM and get out cash. And even when I work with the workers now, like I pay them in advance and I pay them a couple sessions in advance. So when they come over, there's no like transaction that has to happen. It makes me feel comfortable because we're just hanging out. 
Because Andrew is attended to by care workers who work in his building, it's important that the sex workers Andrew brings into his home understand Andrew's disability. I train all my sex workers. I make them aware before they come to my house, like, here's what I'll need from you, here's what I require, here are the things that I need you to do, and because I'm paying them and it's part of their job, I assume that, and I ask them, like, are, are you comfortable with this? Are you okay? I, I figure out their comfort level, and if they, if any of them ever said, no, I'm not comfortable, I would then say, okay, well, I don't think we're going to be a good match then, because I don't want my care work, I don't want my other workers involved in my sexual life. That's my time to be with myself and with another person. I don't want to involve some, I don't want to involve a care worker. It's really weird. I'd imagine that someone with cerebral palsy, you're kind of always being um, helped by someone else or being looked over by someone else. Did you ever have privacy at all? I found it. I found moments where I could masturbate. So like whenever we went to bed and I was in bed and I was awake, I was like, oh, this is the perfect time. So I, I found time. But I often didn't have a lot of, and I still don't have a lot of, like, I'm going to whip my dick out and start jerking off right now kind of privacy. Actually, there are moments for Andrew where his dick kind of needs to release itself. They're just not at ideal times. Because I don't have the ability to masturbate or, or self-pleasure or release the ejaculates, the body builds up and just like anything else in the body, it decides it's time to come out and that's what happens and that can be really embarrassing. While Andrew doesn't have the option of spontaneity, like most of us do, he still loves planning out sex ahead of time. I mean, it is sex after all. Everything has to be scheduled, which is both great. I like the idea of scheduling the the sex that I have, because it's like, ooh, Wednesday at 2 o'clock I get to, like, fuck around with this dude. That's hot. But also, like, um, I would like to be able to just whip my dick out when I wanted to or or be sexual when I want to and, and, you know... Or take, you know, in, in the queer male community, there's a lot of like, show me your dick. I wish I could just do that, but I can't. But it's not just partnered sex, or at least it shouldn't have to be. While Andrew can't pleasure himself with his hands anymore, there is still the question of sex toys. Well, shameless plug, a lot of sex toys are inaccessible to me. So I am the co-founder of Deliciously Disabled, a company that my sister and I are working on to create the first line of hands-free sex toys for disabled people because most sex toys for disabled people with limited hand dexterity much like mine like you can see on the camera my hands are a little bit like they're formed differently so sex toys don't often work for me so a lot of the toys don't work again hence sex workers working on a sex toy line might not be the average sibling activity but it is for andrew and his sister it's a way for him to again open up about what he really wants and what his needs are We've started getting closer a lot over the last few years because of this. And she actually brought it up to me. She was like, what is one thing you want to you you want to change? Like, what is one thing that would make accessibility better for you? And I was like, oh, I need to do like a grabber. Like, I wasn't thinking sex toys. And she was like, well, what you work in sexuality and disability. What about sex toys? And so we started talking about it. And we realized she has a great marketing background. I have a great creative background. We could really work together. It's Andrew's openness and talking about his needs and wants that make his work seem almost radical. How often do we ask people who are disabled what they truly need in life? Like, really need? You'd probably be taken off guard if the response was sex toys, because that kind of bluntness isn't normal for everyone. But if we're being honest here, another reason why that might sound shocking for some is because we don't expect people with disabilities to be sexual, let alone talk about it. 
I, for one, never really considered what sex is like for someone with a disability, and if we as a community are doing enough to make sure they also find pleasure. Are we providing them with the tools they need to get off, which I'd argue is one of our basic human rights? Should we rethink the criminality of sex work? I mean, when the Netherlands legalized sex work, there were reports that a lot of people with disabilities there felt more inclined to pay for sex. Should we do the same? It almost seems like we're doing a disservice by criminalizing something people like Andrew can really make use of. No wonder he's taking matters into his own hands. It makes total sense that he would work on a line of sex toys, and that he's been shooting some porn. I've done a bunch of photo shoots. I've done, I just recently shot a porn scene. Um, I did it the other day, which was like super fun and super terrifying, but it was fun. Um, like I, and you know, we did it with my disabled body and we did all that. Like, I'm not afraid of that stuff. And if it's marketed the right way, it can be hot as fuck. Like for instance, I market myself all the time. My running joke is that I'm a big dick crip. Like I, I know how to play with that stuff and make people sit up and take notice to what I'm doing. And so if you're going to market sexuality stuff to disabled people, you have to have a disabled person in the room marketing it for you or with you. So for this one that I got to do, and I don't know how much I can speak about it, but I did one with some people and it was really cool because my disabled body got to be there. Like you'll see that I'm disabled on camera. You'll see that I need help on camera. You'll see all the things that we just spoke about on camera and that's important so that's exciting for me because i've never seen that so like i don't watch porn much again that's why i hire sex workers i'd rather hire them and touch the real body than i would have to like look at look at something that doesn't represent me have you ever seen someone who represents you in porn it's rare i have seen it i can't remember what porn it was but it's it's out there do you remember what you were feeling when you saw that it was very fetishized so it was like, oh, Johnny, you come back from the war and you're in a wheelchair. Let me take care of you. It was very weird. So it wasn't, it wasn't like what I really wanted it to be. And I haven't just seen, and I like, I've worked on, on other like, I've consulted on other porn shoots where like a disabled person will be in the shoot in the scene, um, and that was cool. But I'd never seen my body reflected back to me, and now I have it on film. Like now there's a video of me jerking off with a dude on film somewhere that's going to be eventually released, which is hot, but I've, that's, it's terrifies me because it's going to be out there now, but I think it's so important too. It is important. While there are disabled porn stars out there, you can argue that there aren't enough of them, especially when you remember just how many Americans with disabilities there are. Where do you see your career going from, from here then? Cause it's, you're doing so much and you just shot your first porn scene. So what does the future look like for you? Uh, just more of the same, really. I, I mean, I like I like my low-key thing. I like my I like just hanging out. <laughs> I don't want to be a big star. I just want to get representation out there. And if, if me showing my body helps to do that and gets more porn companies interested in working with me or other people like me, great. Thank you so much, Andrew. I, I really hope you enjoyed our conversation. I did. I hope you did, too. How can people find you? Sure. They can find me on my website at www.andrewgerza.com. They can download my weekly podcast, Disability After Dark, on whatever podcatcher they use. And so all the listeners should be downloading that right now. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at TheAndrewGerza. All social media, actually, at TheAndrewGerza. That's T H E. 
A-N-D-R-E-W-G-U-I-Z-A. Perfect. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks. And that was our first episode of How I Fuck. This podcast was produced by me, Natalie Rivera. I am also the host and creator. Ben Gilles is our audio engineer. Cheyenne Lopez did copy and fact check. Vocal coaching was by Chelsea Quilka. Music is by Miguel Gutierrez. You can find more of his music online under his artist name, Mag. Our marketing team includes Gabriela Sanchez and Alyssa Medina. Also, check out our sponsor, FemBot Magazine. And if you're curious about the resources we used in this podcast, I recommend checking out our website, howifuckpodcast.com. That is How I Fuck Podcast without the U, so F-C-K. We'll also be posting our episodes there as we keep releasing them. And please, if you like this podcast, tell someone you know. We'd also appreciate you liking, subscribing, and rating this podcast. It helps us keep this project going. Thank you, and stay tuned for our next episode.